Tactical nuclear weapons are essentially weapons that are delivered within a very short range. They tend to be smaller uh, yield, uh, so kilotons. Um, but there are a lot of experts who would argue that there's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon simply because any use of a nuclear weapon would have strategic effects and immediately rise to that level, potentially leading to the use of strategic nuclear weapons, which would engage then the superpowers with each other, and that would be really bad. Well, sometimes when I, I used to teach a class about emerging technologies, um, and I got, often get asked the question about sentience and the future of artificial intelligence and um, whether I'm concerned about it. And I said, you know, oftentimes we as humans, we imagine, you know, sentient robots occurring side by side with us as humans unmodified. And I just don't think that's the future. I believe that what's going to happen between now and sentient robots is we're going to see humans that have been modified to leverage both human um, skill sets and computers simultaneously. So when are you signing up for your chip? Welcome to The Evan Weiss Show, broadcasting from the West Coast, raw, in-depth, and relentlessly hacking the mainframe. Here's Evan Weiss. Today I have Natasha Bajuma. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me. And so you're a national security expert. What do you do exactly? Oh, that's a question I get asked a lot. Um, so basically, I mean, I've studied international relations and a lot of technological topics for the last 20 plus years. I spent 11 years in the Department of Defense, three of which were in the Pentagon, where I provided advice to senior policymakers about weapons of mass destruction and other such issues. So essentially, it's a lot of research, a lot of writing, and providing recommendations to U.S. policymakers. And what would you say in 2021 is the number one threat to Americans? The number one threat. That's a hard one at the moment. Um, <laughs> there are a number dovetailing together that caused me a lot of pause. I would say, well, I'm, I'm biased. Um, so I would say, um, oh, goodness. Nuclear weapons probably is the number one. I think Americans, and, and it's mostly because Americans don't think about them. Yeah. Um, I think right now, pandemic is on everyone's mind. I would say the next global pandemic is quite obviously a really big threat. Um, but because Americans are a lot more aware of that, um, we're much more um, set up to potentially deal with that in the future. Nuclear weapons, it's, it's, it's interesting because I talk to Amer regular Americans about them and they're like, they still exist? Wait, that's still an issue? And um, it turns out not only is it still an issue, but it's starting to heat up. Oh, really? Uh, we're seeing China and Russia and the U.S. modernizing their nuclear arsenals. I don't know if you caught it, but in July, um, this couple months ago, some journalists discovered more than 200 new silos in China for wow. intercontinental ballistic missiles. And Russia is developing a um, basically drone, underwater drone, that would carry nuclear weapons, so autonomous mm. uh, drone um, carrying nuclear weapons. These are not positive developments. Yeah, also, I know other countries are developing and, and, and ready to use things like tactical nuclear weapons. What are those? Tactical nuclear, well, that's a big topic, actually. Tactical nuclear weapons are essentially weapons that are delivered within a very short range. They tend to be smaller uh, yield, uh, so kilotons. Um, 
But there are a lot of experts who would argue that there's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon simply because any use of a nuclear weapon would have strategic effects and immediately Hmm. rise to that level, potentially leading to the use of strategic nuclear weapons, which would engage them, the superpowers, with each other, and that would be really bad. Yeah. And what do you think about space weapons? Uh, Is that like another frontier in, uh, in national security? Yeah, I would say that that's probably very high up on my list of things to worry about for a number of reasons. Um, Well, one, the intensive commercialization of space, which is really a good thing uh, for people on Earth, um, but it's a bad thing if it all goes dark um, because we depend so much on GPS, on satellite communications, and um, increasingly, countries are looking at space as the next frontier for warfare, um, developing anti-satellite missiles, laser-guided uh, weapons for space. Um, I'm extremely worried because space is the other place where we have early warning detection for nuclear uh, launches. And if those satellites were taken out, it would remove at least you know some data points for whether or not we're under nuclear attack. I love your books. I think your books are prophetic. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So what inspired you to write Bionic Bug? So Bionic Bug is part of um, a a series, a private investigator series set in Washington, D.C., set in the future, all dealing with um, new technology. And I was at the Department of Defense um, studying all sorts of emerging technologies and becoming fascinated with um, the realm of the possible for today and came across um, some research done by DARPA. Huge fan of DARPA. They're doing a lot of uh, that frontier research, yeah. um, including they, they supported the mRNA vaccines for the pandemic as well really? early on. Interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in any event, um, they were doing some research to turn live beetles into, well, essentially surveillance devices. Um, basically, you could put strap a little um, camera on the back of a beetle and some electronics, and you could remote control fly the live beetle around and... Um, do various things. There's been a lot of films in in recent years dealing with you know small surveillance cockroaches, right, right. Um, beetles, and other things. And so even uh, pigeons, even yeah. So it really inspired my imagination. And I hate bugs, like really hate them. <laughs> and so I was like, oh my goodness, bionic bug. I can see a story there. And um, so I wound a story around essentially a live a live beetle that does carry surveillance um, cameras, but is also genetically modified to um, not only bite humans, because most beetles do not bite humans, but also um, carry disease and spread disease. Um, And so that that's where the story came in and and actually my my desire with the books was to kind of educate americans about the coming technologies because i think you know many of these are right around the corner i think people would be surprised that um you know they've already been you know remote control flying live beetles around have they have have they been tested uh, freely in, in, in public, these uh, these remote control beetles? Not that I know of. Um, I know that there are a number of projects going on to use, you know, small insects to do these sorts of things. And one reason it captured my imagination was, of course, well, why don't they just make a robotic beetle? Why do they need a live beetle? What, why bother uh, with the remote control business? And it's because beetles have their, of course, they eat things and they have their energy source. And batteries um, are hard, mm. are still hard to miniaturize to that extent. And so <laughs> having the energy source in the insect at this point is, is still a better option in some respects than, than robotics. 
in, in philosophy like what what do we what are are we robots are we kind of like part of this are we like advanced robots what do you think about that well sometimes when i i used to teach a class about emerging technologies um and i got often get asked the question about sentience in the future of artificial yes. intelligence and um whether i'm concerned about it and i said you know Oftentimes, we as humans, we imagine, you know, sentient robots occurring side by side with us as humans unmodified. And I just don't think that's the future. I believe that what's going to happen between now and sentient robots is we're going to see humans that have been modified to leverage both human um, skill sets and computers simultaneously. So when are you signing up for your chip? Yeah, right now. All right, I'm in line um, too. <laughs> yeah, and my next, um, my novel, it's it's on a um, beta app for Amazon right now. It's called Westphalia. I have my characters wearing augmented reality glasses. I didn't go as far nice. as the contact lenses, but they, they mm -hmm. wear glasses. As a national security expert, what did you think about, which was kind of alarming to me, uh, when uh, Armenia and I, for, I forgot the other country, Azerbaijan, were, and Azerbaijan was was um, provided these drones that were able to to exact tremendous casualties on Armenia. I mean, that was pretty shocking to me. What do you think about that technology? Uh, it's extremely powerful. Drones, essentially, I mean. For one, you can shoot them down and there's no loss of life, at least in the drone right. itself, right? So they're much more attractive, I think, to countries for engaging in conflict. You know, there is just the threshold for for war is, is lowered, uh, first and foremost, by these technologies. Um, but also they're so much cheaper. So uh, if you th think about a large platform like a fighter jet, we're talking maybe $300 million, maybe $500 million a piece. And when you're talking those particular drones, I think they're about a million to $2 million a piece. So you just hmm. think about, you know, the relative, you know, power. So l let's say you now have 20 of those and then you have swarming capability. What happens to your larger platform? So I, I've been right. asking myself the question, what about bombers and fighter jets? Are we seeing the end? <laughs> now, what inspired you to write Westphalia? So Westphalia is set much further into the future than my other books set um, in 2053. And um, Westphalia is kind of piggybacking on the piece of Westphalia. And I have been worried about, in the last um, 10 years about the end of the nation state, not in terms of its organizing construct, but rather in terms of its relative power vis-a-vis -vis, uh, private sector companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, you name it. And so basically, uh, Westphalia is set in a post-Second uh, Civil War uh, era okay. of the United States. The United States no longer exists. It's now Westphalia. And it is administered by the five remaining tech giants um, who came together to end the war and strike up a compromise, offering all the survivors of the Second Civil War basically universal income, uh, roof over their head, basically Sounds all, their very needs, familiar. <laughs> all their needs would be met in exchange for complete and total transparency and, of course, obeying all of the rules. And so, basically, I'm concerned about the relative power of the private sector companies vis-a-vis -vis governments and how that power is being um, grown through data and algorithms. 
and surveillance and Mm -hmm. they know us better than we know ourselves i mean i i rely upon google news for my news feed and i i often joke google news knows me better than i know myself they know exactly what i'm going to click on um it's a little embarrassing um (laughs) (laughs) and um so it's it's basically a book about the implications of that power struggle that's about to you know go down and you can see it right now happening with facebook a lot of Westphalia. These were the the threads that I saw leading to the second civil war um, mm-hmm. in our country, and then I just saw the tech giants swooping in as opportunistic as they are <laughs> um, to say, "Ooh, cheap labor force. We'll give them a little something, and we'll get a cheap right. labor force until we don't need them anymore through automation." Right. So, right. And, and do you think it's a good thing that automation is going to? Because you know, when they talk about automation, they talk about it in a way as it's going to free humanity from laborious work. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. You're smart enough to know that, you know. But what, what do you think? There's some sense into that, and, and do you think that's attractive to the average person to kind of accept it? Well, that's the reason behind in Westphalia the universal basic income. There are just uh, slices of the population that are jobless no matter what. Those jobs have already been overcome by automation, and they are not capable of advancing. And so there's a it's it's allegedly Westphalia is a merit-based system um, with ranks mm-hmm. from aluminum to bronze to gold to silver to gold to platinum. And um, there are different, you get different levels. It's kind of like a cruise ship, you know, based on what you pay, you get different levels of benefits based on what rank you are. And those at the aluminum rank are perceived to never advance. And and ultimately, they are kept busy with their hobbies, hoping that they will just live out their lives and, and go away. And What's happening <laughs> at some point? I know it's just terrible. It's just I, I, terrible. I guess are they castrated at some point? Um, no, it's not. It's not solely and green like. Although, okay. although, don't go to the hospital in Westphalia. You probably <laughs> not coming out. So there's some solely and green kind of like flavor in there, but you know the automation is is catching up with other sectors as well. And right, so so even as it starts to remove certain jobs, it's going to catch up to potentially creative jobs. I mean, there's a lot of talk about AI-inspired or written novels and songs and things like that. What happens when AI overtakes human creativity? I, I feel like that human creativity is kind of the last island, but I do I do worry about the future and future employment for mm-hmm. a broad sector of humanity. Is creativity the last island of, of human, uh, I guess, uh, something that we could claim to be our own? Absolutely. I mean, I was just writing a piece today that pe- people, when they think of AI, they think of you know, science fiction AI. They don't understand. Ro- Robocop or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That today's AI <laughs> is really um, advanced statistics, and it's incredibly dull because it's a lot mm-hmm. of data. <laughs> so modeling of behavior. So ultimately, yeah, humans uh, model algorithms based on our understanding of the world, and the algorithms learn from the data, and then they they adapt to the data. But the data is also generated potentially by humans. So it's not like you're you're absolutely right. AI is not untouched by humans, but the question is economically, does AI then remove jobs? Does AI remove the ability to make a living? And what does that mean Mm -hmm. for the future of humanity? Right. And what does it mean for the future of humanity? Do you think people should work for a living? Well, and I address that in Westphalia as well. I think human creativity is somehow the problem. So um, there's a divergence of thought between the leaders of Westphalia. Some believe that 
if we just meet everybody's needs, they'll be happy and we can keep the population, the masses kind of tame and we can do whatever we want. But then there's the other side that believes that once needs are met, they start worrying about other things Hmm. like freedom, like, Hmm. you know, meaning, like, you know, those annoying human qualities that (laughs) animals, you know, aren't troubled by. And, um, you know, if we're only worried about filling our stomach, then we tend to be a little bit preoccupied with that. Um, But once we're not preoccupied with that anymore, then I think we want more out of life. And so there's, there's also this, this idea, expectations, and, you know, how do, how do humans achieve happiness? Well, it's because of some biochemical reaction in our brain. Well, if, you know, you always get the same thing, eventually that becomes dull and you want more. So I, I think we're just, as a species, very dissatisfied. So I, there are two technologies that I kind of have battling out. One is uh, the ability to uh, read and understand brain waves, so the ability to read minds, essentially using some sort of sensor technology. Right. So essentially, we'd walk by something and our thoughts would be recorded and understood, oh, and the kind of transparency that that would facilitate um, to anybody who controlled that technology. And then on the on the flip side is mind control. And that is biochemistry Hmm. and the idea of putting chips in our brains and manipulating biochemistry so that we're all always in a dull state of happiness at all times. (laughs) Kind of like... I know, I know. It's just terrible. It's terrible. (laughs) It's like, I'm going to have nightmares tonight. Um, (laughs) It's terrible. And you see the average person, you know, just walking around doing fishing or doing something else. And and I I wonder, uh, do they even know what's going on? And I think this book is great. A, a great kind of like uh, entryway for them to understand. Absolutely. And I think um, I was blown away. It was, I don't know how many years ago. It wasn't that long ago when I watched Mark Zuckerberg in front of U.S. Congress and I heard the questions that U.S. Congress uh, men were asking him and I was just floored by their absolute lack of understanding right. of the basics of the internet. Right. Not just like, Me too. you know, the problem of social media and disinformation and more complex ideas like that, but just the fundamental, you know, right. basics. And yeah, we need uh, we need Congress to become educated, but we need the American people to become concerned. And the thing is, is we are lulled into uh, denial with the benefits that these technologies exactly. offer us. And that's that's the other thing about Westphalia is that we get so we sign up for all of our three th- free stuff. We like click um, terms and services agreements. So those play are in in Westphalia as well. We just click that. Right. We don't read them. Nobody I does. Mean, I don't read yeah, them. Nobody, nobody does. does. No. We just click them because they're really long and annoying and i've looked at them and i'm like oh no no no! i don't have time for this facebook targets young women and and triggers things like uh, uh eating disorders and other things um yeah okay yeah I've, I've known about this for for at least a decade i mean social media tools like facebook they alter our brain chemistry i mean essentially i was just talking about that um, because believe it or not, when you get likes and things like that, hit. there's a slight right. dopamine release. And so I've been reading a lot about how our brains are actually becoming more tolerant to dopamine, which is a problem for mental illness and depression and things like that. Because when we become more, more acceptant of it, then it doesn't have the same right. effect. And But just also the... Uh, the bubbles that are created, um, the pockets of communities that are created on Facebook, we don't realize it, but when we you know, unfriend all the people who upset us, we're basically narrowing um, our scope. And, and we're, you know, because Facebook, again, like Google, Facebook knows us better than we know ourselves. They know what we're looking at. In fact, you know, if you've done this before, you went to Google and you search something on Google, all of a sudden you're being, you know, fed advertisements on right. Facebook. It's no joke. It's true. Yeah. 
In fact, sometimes I catch Siri spying on me, and then stuff like when I'm talking near my phone, and then uh, the stuff appears on Facebook or other apps. I think, you know, when, when you get into the, the business of the internet and you're doing, you know, anything digital and you see the kind of um, statistics that you get behind the scenes, the analytics, all the clicks, you know, Facebook's even more sophisticated. They know what you've clicked on, what you've hovered over, how long you've hovered, right. I mean, that kind of nuance of data. So even if you didn't click on something, they could potentially know that you might be interested and they'll just feed you that ad again. I mean, that's how they make money. It's like the right. greedy monsters, like, ooh, I think we got one, we got one, we got a fish, let's like show that ad one more time, okay, we got it, they clicked now. I mean, that's, you know, there's a lot of documentaries out there that you can watch about this very thing. You know, thought as I'm watching, you know, streaming services and I'm watching commercial, do they know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they do, they do, uh, they do. Well, yeah. So when when you're in the room and you're watching, they you could collect you know the signature of the photons in the room, and so they know there's a change or degradation to that that someone has left or someone another person has come to the room to watch the television, mm -hmm. and so they're able to to gather that information and maybe you could use it on your next book. Yeah, we'll sounds like sounds like a plan. Just make sure to credit me. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> are there any other topics you want to talk about that I might have missed? Well, I guess, you know, the my biggest news is that I'm about to engage on a one-year road trip um, where I'm going to travel around oh. the country. I'm producing a YouTube channel, and I'm going to be visiting nuclear weapons-related sites. And the idea here is to make the threat of nuclear weapons more proximate. Um, relatable to regular Americans and raise awareness of the fact that, yes, they are still here. And yes, we are modernizing our nuclear forces. We're going to spend about $1 trillion over the next 30 years in this country alone to modernize our nuclear weapons. Wow. And so that is my next big project. So, uh, I mean, so you're just going to show up to nuclear sites like, hey. Even though I worked at Department of Defense, they're not going to open the gate. So I'm trying to arrange as much as I can in advance. Otherwise, I'll just go to the cities and, and talk from there. Um, but I'm traveling around with a truck camper and my dog. That is awesome. And I'm going to visit national parks along the way. So it's kind of a, a, a bucket, um, bucket list trip for me. And, uh, how long is that going to take? And how many sites are there in the United States? Oh, so many, I, I, I couldn't tell you the number. Um, wow. I mean, and, and it depends on what you include. Mm -hmm. Not all of them have nuclear weapons, but if they're nuclear weapons related, meaning the site of a, a test or the site right. of uh, storage of nuclear weapons or et cetera. So, I mean, there could be as many as 900. Um, I've wow. counted 56 in Texas where I'm starting. Wow, just in Texas. Yeah. What do you think about nuclear energy? Do you think that's still a viable thing, or do you think that also presents the same kind of dangers that nuclear weapons do? Not the same kind of dangers. I think, you know, in an era of intensifying climate change, I think we need to look at all, you know, energy options on the table um, that can help us reduce uh, greenhouse gases. But there are problems with nuclear energy, one of them being the proliferation risk of the fuel itself, although the fuel that's used in a, a nuclear reactor for producing electricity is not weapons grade, but still you do produce plutonium and that could be used potentially in a, in a nuclear bomb. But also uh, nuclear energy is not fully clean, right? So we have uranium mining and all the radiation damage caused by the nuclear fuel cycle. Natasha Bajuma. 
national security expert. Where can people find more information about you and what you're working on, especially your road trip? Yeah, so for my road trip, they can go to radioactiveroadtrip.com. That's the website. <laughs> um, if they want to look it up on YouTube, it's Radioactive Road Tripping. And then my author website is natashabajima.com. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Evan Weiss Show. Head over to iTunes to listen to previous shows. Questions? Email us at e at evanweiss.com.